am great at predicting a plot twist. I'd give you an example, but the first rule about the movie that comes to mind is that I'm not supposed to talk about it. But you've probably seen a film or television show where it was all just a dream. Or someone was dead the whole time. Or maybe there was a surprise villain. Yeah, like in Frozen. Sorry if you don't have a child in your life that spoiled it for you a million times already. But when Hans turns out to be the villain? Yes, absolutely. I was actually surprised by that. Yeah, it's a good twist. But what if I told you that even in the most suspenseful films, there was a surefire way to spot the surprise villain the minute they pull out their phone? Ryan Johnson, who you may know for Looper or Star Wars The Last Jedi or even last year's Knives Out, recently revealed some juicy insider information. Apple won't let you put its products in the hands of villains. Which raises some questions. When did Apple get into the business of good versus evil? How is product placement affecting the plots of our favorite films and television? And most importantly, has Apple spoiled every movie or television show we're going to watch from now on? He was basically just saying, it's kind of funny that every time they show the terrorists, they're all on Dells. Something to chew on when we get back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. And I'm Joshua Rivera. And each week, we're bringing you to the intersection of pop culture and technology and sharing the fascinating stories that have impacted the world around us. This week, we're talking about a big reveal from American filmmaker Ryan Johnson, who in February this year told Vanity Fair how one tech giant is influencing Hollywood. Apple, they let you use iPhones in movies, but, and this is very pivotal if you're ever watching a mystery movie, Bad guys cannot have iPhones on camera. Do we need a spoiler warning? Yes. Uh, in this episode, we are going to spoil the movie Knives Out, but we will give you the chance to skip forward a few minutes if you want to avoid hearing it. If you haven't seen Knives Out and you want to go in with no prior knowledge, skip forward a couple of minutes. So, Josh, have you seen Knives Out? I have, yes. Okay, so you know that the villain of the story who gets his comeuppance at the end of the movie is Ransom, or Hugh Ransom Drysdale, uh, <laughs> played by Chris Evans. But what you might not have realised is that unlike other characters in the film, he does not use an iPhone. And apparently that's because Apple wouldn't allow it. 
And it looks like Apple has actually had this kind of sway on the stories that we tell for a really long time. So like, how long? Because Apple's been popular for a little while, but they've been around since, like, what, the 70s? Well, I talked to someone who first noticed this relationship between good and Apple and evil and, you know, anything but Apple almost 20 years ago. He calls it Mac theory. My name is Dean Brow, and I inadvertently invented a traitor detector through Mac theory watching 24 20 years ago. So Dean was obviously kind of into 24, but more importantly, he was a huge fan of Apple itself, covering its products for places like Macworld. And back then, in the very early 2000s, Apple looked a little different than it does now. I want to say we might have been on touchwheel iPods, but not on, maybe not even touch yet. It may have still been clickwheel iPods. So it was a really specific era of Apple, too, where they were beginning to turn a corner and about to, like, you know, jet off from that corner with the iPhone. Um, but they weren't there yet. Oh, man. Clickwheels. Miss those. Yeah. 24 premiered in November 2001. So right after 9-11. Ah, yes. And, you know, this was also around a very heightened time just, I mean, within just a few years of 9-11. And so this was also not only this big show, it had a big budget, Kiefer Sutherland's a part of it. And it was also this massive national show about terrorism and thwarting a terrorist plot in 24 hours, this immediacy. And in watching this show about terrorism, Dean quickly noticed something about how the terrorists were portrayed. He even wrote about it and published his thoughts online. He was basically just saying, it's kind of funny that every time they show the terrorists, they're all on Dell's. And I just kept thinking like, well, if Apple paid for this placement, Dell must be hating this placement. Especially in the whole like, are you with or against the terrorists kind of angle. You've got to realize this is the same time that the I'm a Mac ads were playing with Justin Long, uh, you know, doing the I'm a Mac. And he's like cool, hipster. And then, um, oh man, I totally blanked on his name. The comedian and, you know, this, with, he's got you know, his giant glasses and just acting as just very, very straight-laced. I'm a PC. I remember the ad, but I also blanked on the other actor's name. <laughs> it's because he's a PC, you know, he's <laughs> yep. just forgettable. Yep. Uh, we can watch it, though, if you'd like, so you can find out. Yeah, sure. It's been a while. Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. (laughs) The nerdy PC. Yeah, he's sneezing because he has viruses, which Macs don't have. Of course, yeah. No, Macs never get viruses. (laughs) So do you remember who this guy is then? Uh, no. Okay, let's look him up. No, no, do not be a hero. John Hodgman? Does that name sound familiar to you? Yeah, he does new ads now for KFC. He's the colonel. What? Hey, if you feel like that'll help, good. So Apple really intentionally setting up this stark divide. It was very black and white. It was meant to be very black and white on you're only cool if you use the Mac and you're not cool if you're not. And the fact that then this was playing out in a terrorist versus hero context uh, is just kind of bananas. Yeah, that's absolutely mind-boggling to me. Right, and this started to become even clearer to Dean as he watched more of 24. Even within the second or third episode, I'd already noted there was one person in the good guy camp who, for whatever reason, in this massive max, was using a PC. And this is where we get to the twist. Because shortly after Dean notices that one of the good guys is using a PC, 
the show tells us there's a hidden traitor. Someone in Kiefer Sutherland's group is a mole working with the terrorists, and we don't know who it is. Everybody thought they had it pegged with this one character, but they still used a Mac, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna put my money on the PC person. Did he actually put money on it? Was there a prop bet going? I don't think so, but he did put his theory out into the world, and not everyone believed him. So yeah, either people just said, yeah, it was validating because they were Mac people and they just thought, oh yeah, good guys using Macs, or they just thought I was overthinking it because they weren't thinking of it being a true product placement and they just thought it was more like a prop choice Um, and it probably wasn't consequential. But you've admitted that you were a Mac guy as well, right? So did you ever doubt yourself and think, maybe I am just hoping that good guys have Macs? You know, it may not feel like it now, but trust me, as an Apple person back then, doubting yourself was basically all you ever did. Dean had a day job at the time, working for a college that issued everyone PCs. And I fought every single day to be able to use my Mac in the office and not have to use the PCs that the school would give you. You felt like you were on the cusp of something, but you also felt like you were out on that ledge alone. Um, So yeah, I doubted myself constantly, (laughs) even especially on this theory. Because here's the thing, it could just be shrewd product placement, but not necessarily in any way connected to the plot. But when that idea of a traitor was introduced... That's when I, I start to feel like, you know what, maybe I think I actually am right. Because this ev- the one everybody thinks is a traitor is the one still using a Mac. So I remember there being a traitor, but I don't remember who it was. <laughs> was it the PC using turncoat? It was. It was the PC user. It was, in fact, Jack Bauer's second in command, Nina Myers. Oh, that's right. How could you, Nina? And it was totally unexpected because the one person everybody thought was the traitor was sort of this, like, the nerdy loner. And that was the narrative that everybody could get behind in America at the time, which was, if you thought otherwise, you must be some sort of weird nerdy loner that'd be easy to to convert. But surprise, it was the nice white lady. Big twist. But Dean wasn't fooled. He had his suspicions, and when the grand reveal came, he was proved right. How did you react? It was absolutely a, you know, shouting uh, at home situation. Then a follow-up question. Have you seen the movie Knives Out? Yes, absolutely. Spoiler alert again. Skip ahead about 30 seconds. Okay, so you won't mind me spoiling this. Did you know that the writer and director, Ryan Johnson, of Knives Out also supported your theory in an interview about the movie. What? No. Yes. So Ryan Johnson gave an interview to Vanity Fair in which he said that you are not allowed to put an Apple product in the hands of a villain in your movie. Wow, that's crazy. So so that's like a directive then by Apple as a part of sponsorship then. So he says, how how does it feel to be validated by someone like Ryan Johnson? Yeah, that's that's really what I've been waiting for all these years. I actually feel kind of privileged to have been able to be the one to pass on that validation, you know, 20 years later. Right. Yeah, like he was a prophet but didn't quite know that until you came along after like Two decades. Right? Because what Dean did back then was pretty remarkable because, you know, 20 years ago, Apple wasn't nearly as recognizable as it is today. I would be willing to bet that a lot of my friends at the time wouldn't have even known those were Apple Towers being used in 24. But now we all know when someone's using a fake iPhone 
with like a really crappy bubbly UI that's clearly not the iPhone iOS. So yeah, I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see that cat out of the bag play out now that everyone can be looking for that. I totally get what Dean means here. I wanted to know as well, like, what does product placement mean for our favorite stories now that the cat is out of the bag and now that Apple products are everywhere? So I found us an expert. Maybe this conversation changes that visual language and I can work on something where I just give a red herring and just give somebody a PC that you think is going to turn into a bad guy, but then doesn't. When we get back, a production designer tells all. So we've learned that Apple cares a lot about product placement. And as Dean discovered, this goes back decades. In fact, there was even some Apple product placement in the 1996 film Mission Impossible. Oh man, you're going to have to uh, refresh my memory there. It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah, Apple was actually doing pretty badly at the time. And they signed this deal with Paramount Pictures that included putting the PowerBook 5300C in the movie. But apparently Apple didn't get as much say as they might have liked, and the movie Mac was shown using a command line interface instead of Mac OS. Uh, Here, I'll show you the scene. (laughs) Message waiting. Look at that old power book. It's so chunky. Chunky but portable, I guess, if you've got big muscles like he has. The message is for Job. Yeah, there's this very elaborate email animation that I don't think is real. Right, exactly. So they weren't showing the real Mac OS. So I guess it maybe wasn't as much of an advert as Apple was hoping that it would be. Ah, how dare they not represent Mac products the right way. And that's probably why they're so picky about their product placement now. And, you know, I haven't actually seen Mission Impossible, but I have seen Sex and the City, uh, which started airing back in 1998. So I know that Carrie Bradshaw uses a Mac. She absolutely does. And I know this because as a writer in New York, I have absorbed a lot of Sex in the City by osmosis. So you definitely know which Sex in the City character you are. I'm not sure. I mean, I would probably flatter myself and say I'm a Miranda, but I'm not sure how actually true that would be. Interestingly, HP got their products placed in the show too, and you can see Samantha using an HP computer, but Carrie stuck with Mac. Have you seen You've Got Mail? Ooh, this is a blank spot for me. We mentioned Tom Hanks in another episode because of his appearance in the movie Splash. In You've Got Mail, he is the corporate stooge to Meg Ryan's sweet indie bookstore owner. So guess who has the Mac and who has the PC? Do you ever feel you become the worst version of yourself? He looks sad. Tom Hanks is really thinking behind what I think is a PC. No, I know what you mean and I'm completely jealous. And that's a little apple right there, immediately. She's being so much more honest when she types. It's because she's using a Mac. So clearly, Apple really cares about how its products look. Yeah, uh, so much so, actually, that while I was researching this, I found a Wired article from 2012 that suggested that that is why they flipped the Apple logo on the back of its laptops, because it is less important how the logo looks to you, the user, than how it looks to other people. So there must be a lot of money in product placement if they care so much. Yeah, just in general. I mean, there are some classic examples. So uh, apparently Hershey spent a million dollars getting Reese's Pieces into the 1982 movie E.T. And they saw profits rise 65% during the run of the film. 
The website Statista reckons that in 2017, product placement revenue in the US amounted to $8.87 billion. Research suggests it's more effective than traditional advertising. And I wanted to learn more about how it all works from someone who deals with this kind of thing for a living. My name is Joshua Peterson. I'm a production designer in the film industry. Another Joshua. I know, right? We had one in the last episode as well. But this Joshua has worked on indie films like Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, uh, fashion design, and even commercials. Production designers like him tend to be one of the first hires after the director. They manage teams of creatives, fine arts types, Joshua says, from model makers to construction coordinators. It's usually one of the biggest departments and we spend the most money. The end result of that is everything that you see on frame that the light touches that isn't an actor, um, you know, or a costume. That means Joshua and his team are responsible for what objects appear on set. And that means he knows a lot about product placement. So how does product placement happen? Joshua says there are a couple of ways. Say you're making a movie and there's a specific scene that you need to populate with objects. You'll reach out to brands that you'd like to include and they'll often hand them over for free. A lot of these companies are very generous with that anyway. You know, you'll, you'll have a, a party scene where you have alcohol products and you'll get in touch with a distributor. And I've had them send pallets of things when all I've requested is like, hey, can you send a couple bottles of something? And they'll send, <laughs> they'll send like a truckload of stuff. And, and uh, that's great for the rap party. Is it ever tempting to request your favorite brand of something for inclusion in the movie because you know you'll get freebies? Oh, absolutely. And I don't want to tarnish my <laughs> reputation and say that uh, and have anybody listening that's like, um, oh, maybe we won't sense it to him anymore. But I've had projects just in development that were not even, we're just like, hey, we're thinking about maybe having Red Bull in this movie later and they send us a palette of things and the movie never gets made. And so then you just have an infinite supply of an energy drink or something. <laughs> you know, that's definitely happened before. Can anybody even drink that much Red Bull? That's not healthy. That's probably not good for you, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the other way this happens? That's proper endorsements, like with James Bond, right? Where brands will reach out because they really want this character to be seen with their product. Uh, in those cases, the brands can make it very lucrative for the film. BMW will spare no expense. They'll, you know, if they want their car in the, in the film, they'll, they'll make sure that that happens. Uh, apparently, BMW spent $3 million placing its Z3 model into GoldenEye uh, from 1995 and saw a $240 million increase in sales. I, I guess it works because BMWs are not cheap. Yeah, even Joshua feels the pull. If I'm watching Mad Men, and even though there's a huge element of that TV show about smoking cessation, I still watch that show. I'm not a smoker, but I'll watch that show. I'm like, man... That looks cool. And I think the more that we're bombarded with these things, the more they're on the top of our mind. But the brands always hold the power. They get to decide whether to send you freebies or pay for an endorsement. And they get to make demands for how their products are shown. It's not just Apple. Joshua frequently gets instructions from other brands. They're happy to advertise in this way, um, especially with indie films and smaller productions where it's just like, we don't know who this audience is as long as you're using our product in the proper way. The red can of Red Bull can't be used as like a weapon or something. Is that likely? I mean, probably not. But imagine you're shooting a party scene with alcohol. Budweiser might love to be your beer of choice, 
but they wouldn't want you showing a character acting drunk and disorderly while holding one of their cans. Yeah, I get it, because I don't want to be the beer that people drink when they're out (laughs) of control. Uh, However, Apple's guidelines definitely do go further than most brands. And Joshua's actually seen them. Really? Yeah, he had the proof in writing. I looked at it again uh, before this just to make sure that I'm not getting myself in any trouble here. But the the first guideline is that the uh, user is, you know, is is a good guy. It says that just very specifically. Yeah, so it really is that explicit then. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not all it says. The second line item is that it's a, it, it can be an anti-hero pending the company's review of the script, of the material. Wait, 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 wait. Did, did he say anti-hero? That's, that's wild. Okay, so they're that involved then, that they literally have someone determining the morality of an anti-hero. I'm curious about this. How do they decide what makes an anti-hero too problematic? Someone at Apple has to say, hmm, this character is too anti, or... This character is just enough hero. Right. This adds a whole other layer to Mac theory. Like, would Apple have allowed Scarface to use an iPhone or, you know, Don Draper if they had cell phones back then? I'm curious, when they review a script, what qualities they're looking for to decide whether the antihero gets to hold their phone. Because antiheroes are decidedly neither good nor bad. They're just characters who lack heroic attributes who are also the protagonist. So Ryan Johnson was right iPhones won't be in the hands of a villain, but they could end up in the hands of someone who isn't necessarily good. Which made me wonder, does Joshua Peterson think Ryan Johnson spilling the beans on these guidelines has spoiled storytelling? Uh, not at all. I think that he has only revealed something that would have been revealed anyway. He argues that, sure, Apple products might now reveal plot points, but good stories are full of elements that reveal plot points. There are always clues, always visual cues or verbal cues or audio cues that give us hints, big hints. Um, You know, the score is a really good example of that. Scores tell us everything before it happens. The score for the first of the newest trilogy of Star Wars. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh Uh-oh. Skip forward 15 seconds. The score for that film tells us who Rey's parents are in the first one. Oh, wow. I did not catch that at all. Here, Joshua, take a listen. Yeah, this was something that that fans were theorizing about, right? Like they were sort of like digging through the score and listening over and over. And they thought that, you know, you could hear the Imperial March sort of in between in the score. And if you use your imagination, yeah, it's you can. Yeah. And... I've got my personal issues with this plot point that we will save for another podcast. But basically, some people argue that the touch of the Imperial March that you can hear there hints at Rey being a descendant of Emperor Palpatine. You know, I would love to join you for that podcast because I too have opinions about that movie. But um, going back to Joshua, he doesn't see this as a problem because that's his job on a film set to contribute to the plot in all kinds of subtle, sneaky ways. And for filmmakers at large, technology has always been a tricky part of storytelling. Technology and film are always working hand-in-hand in that way because we always have new things coming out that complicate how scripts have worked in the past. If you want to write Halloween, you can't do that. You can't write horror genre films anymore the same way that you used to because all the kids have cell phones. 
and all the kids, you know, the kids aren't allowed to go outside. And it's like our society changes and we have to then reflect, how does the masked murderer come find these kids if they all have cell phones and they just take a picture of them, send it to the police? So I think that this, this challenge is sort of ongoing. And I don't think that I don't think that Ryan Johnson has ruined anything at all. In fact, Macintosh theory, or Macintosh law, I guess now, might have even inspired him. For the future, I think that it has invited a new challenge in whodunits. If you feel like this has become, you know, as a designer or a writer or director, that this has become now too obvious of a visual clue, then we have to find some new way of operating around that. And maybe this conversation changes that visual language. And uh, I can work on something where I give a, I, I just give a red herring, you know, and just give somebody a PC that you think is going to turn into a bad guy, but then doesn't. This feels like one of those things where once you realize how common it is, you just can never not notice it. It sort of changes everything going forward for you in this sort of minor but very persistent way. So this is going to change how you watch movies then? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I, I can't not notice it now. Yeah, like even if, you know, even if Joshua does make a movie where he turns it on its head and the bad guy has an apple, like we're still going to notice because mm-hmm. we're looking for apple logos everywhere in our films now. Right. Since researching this episode, I've actually started thinking a lot more about what products, characters in my favorite films and television shows use. What's interesting to me in particular is that now that we know that Apple has so much say over which characters are good enough to use their products and which ones are villains who mm-hmm. you know have to use PCs and Androids, I, I would love to know how they make that call in cases where it's less clear. So like morally gray characters. Right. Yeah, right. Like a Tony Soprano. Yeah. Or like um, like characters who start out as villains and then they become heroes. So like the Grinch starts out with an android <laughs> and then his heart grows and he buys an iPhone. <laughs> his heart and his wallet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that remains to be seen is if Apple will follow its own rules now that they're producing original shows on Apple TV+. So on The Morning Show, the disgraced TV anchor, played by Steve Carell, definitely uses an iPhone. Yeah, I've actually heard some rumors about that. Let's call it informed hearsay. That in their own shows, Apple no longer cares about bad people using their products. They just don't want their technology to be bad. Oh, okay. So like Steve Carell's character can physically assault someone as long as he's not doing it with a phone. Like he can't, he can't hack them or send them mean texts on an iPhone. Yeah. Again, this is my understanding of it, but I think it's that their technology has to be portrayed in a good light. I think we should throw it to the listeners. Like I don't have Apple TV Plus, but if the listeners do, keep an eye out for Apple products and let us know how they're being used. You can tell us by rating the show and uh, letting us know in the review. Joshua, before we go, I have a confession. Apple has placed a product with me. I didn't pay for my iPhone. They sent it to me so that I could review iOS games. (laughs) So do they think you're a hero then? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they must do, right? (laughs) And what phone do you use? Uh, I use an iPhone and I'm a little upset about how much money it cost me. (laughs) I'm sorry. But at least we know that we're all heroes here on Wild Wild Tech. Next week on Wild Wild Tech, how did a cute, relaxing game like Animal Crossing become overrun by capitalist greed? Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast 
and a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by myself, Jordan Erica Weber, and Joshua Rivera. You can find us at jordanweber.com and on Twitter at jmrivera02. Our producers are Cody Hoffmockel and Janielle Kastner, with help from Reyes Mendoza and Caroline Hamilton. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Wild Wild Tech Pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>